Well, we're continuing today and next week, the last two times we're going to be answering some of the questions that you submitted um, in previous weeks. And this morning we are going to be looking at two questions related to the church and specifically to worship, uh, one on the Sabbath and one on worship specifically. And I think you'll find both of these questions fascinating and very helpful. And uh, the first question that we want to just jump right into because of time is the Sabbath. Could you define the fourth commandment, the Sabbath? Have you ever wondered about the Sabbath? Have you ever wondered why it's in the Ten Commandments that it was supposed to be an everlasting covenant that Jesus kept the Sabbath and the Jews kept the Sabbath? And so why don't we or do we? You ever wondered that? A lot of people, when they're reading their Bible, will come across one of those Sabbath verses, and then there's kind of this little twinge inside of them that says, how come we aren't doing this? And then you keep reading on because you don't know why. We just don't. Or maybe we do. Or maybe Sunday's the Sabbath. And so there's all of these sorts of things that create a lot of tension. And every time, I think every time that uh, I've done a question and answer time when I've solicited questions from the congregation about the Bible, this always comes up. People want to know how come we don't keep the Sabbath like the Jews kept the Sabbath. Because some churches do. There's Seventh-day Adventism, but a lot of other Seventh-day type churches, um, there are people who are called Sabbatarians who maybe worship on Sunday, but believe that the Sabbath has been transferred to Sunday. And so there's all sorts of people like that. And so what does the Bible say? Um, Why don't we keep the Sabbath like the Jews did for so many thousand years and still do today? Well, first we need to understand some basic facts about the Sabbath. And the first fact is this. The Sabbath is not Sunday. That's what you need to know. First and foremost, Sabbath is seventh, the seventh day, that is Saturday. Sunday is the first day. And so we need to understand that the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. Now, the Sabbath week, we also need to understand, came from the creation account. Remember what happened? God created everything in the first six days. And then on the seventh or Sabbath day, he rested from all of his labors. That became the model of the the work week, which we still have and everybody still has. Six days you were to labor, the seventh day you were to rest. That is recorded in Genesis chapter 21. You are to work six literal 24-hour periods and rest on the seventh literal 24-hour period, just like God created the earth in six literal 24-hour days. So now we are to pattern our work week after that and rest on this seventh day. That's where the whole command came from. And the fourth commandment is stated in two texts. We're going to look at both of them. The first one, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 20, Exodus chapter 20. Here the Ten Commandments are given for the first time, and the fourth commandment is given in verses 8 through 11. They have um, crossed through the Red Sea. They are now camped at Mount Sinai. They have made this covenant with God um, to obey his commandments and that he would be their God and they would be his people. 
And uh, this is what he says in the fourth commandment, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Now, that's what he says you are to do. Now, notice the rationale given in verse 11. For, this is why they are to observe the seventh day. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth and the sea and all that is within them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, right there, we learn several things. One, the day of the Sabbath is a day of rest or ceasing from one's labors. Secondly, it was to be patterned after the creation account when God rested on the seventh day after creating for six days. Third is to be kept holy, which means it is to be set apart from sin or devoted unto God as his day. And this is defined by resting having your children rest, having your servants rest, and having your animals rest. Now, think that's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty simple um, instruction. Now, if you were to want to look at other texts, and I'm just going to give these to you so you can write them down, but we can't go to them this morning. If you want to look at other instructions about the Sabbath and what is to be done on the Sabbath and other Sabbath um, days and months and Years, you can look in texts such as Exodus 16, 23 through 29, Exodus 31, 13 through 16, Leviticus 16, 31, Leviticus 19, 3, and also verse 30, Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus 25, 1 through 3, and Leviticus 26 all talk about differing kinds of Sabbath years, special Sabbath events like the Day of Atonement, things like that. Now, by New Testament times, the Jews had added so much to the very simple commands of the Sabbath that they had just basically lost the whole purpose of the Sabbath day. They had just heaped all sorts of man-made traditions upon the Sabbath. For instance, they believed that they added to God's word that you couldn't lift anything heavier than a fig. Now, even if you had a very large fig, figs aren't very big. And so they said, if you lift anything bigger than a fig, you're you're sinning. You're breaking the Sabbath. Of course, the Bible never said that, but that's what they added to it. They also invented what they called a Sabbath day's journey, um, which was 1,000 paces. And so everybody built their house within 1,000 steps of the synagogue so they could get to the synagogue and back without breaking the Sabbath. The problem is, is the Bible doesn't say that either. And they would even get around the Sabbath day's journey by saying this. They'd say, well, you know, um, you can only go a thousand paces from your home. So um, if you want to go farther than a thousand paces, all you need to do is bring something from home. Put it in a little sack, stash it by the road, and then you can go a thousand more paces because now your home's moved. (laughs) And then what we can do is bring several things from home and actually put them along the way, and you could pretty much go indefinitely as long as you could carry little fragments of your house. And then when you come back, you'd pick them all up. And so that is the kind of thing that they did. You can go to Israel today and still see this. I remember when I was in Israel and I went to the King David Hotel on the Sabbath day, I noticed something very interesting about one of the elevators. 
um, I walked around and the elevator was going and I noticed and it was just, I could see it going down and stopping, going down, stopping, going down, stopping, going down, stopping. And then I went down on the other elevator and I noticed it was going up and I thought, well, what is this? How come the elevator keeps going down, stop, opened up, next floor down, stop, open up, next floor, and then goes back up and keeps doing this all day long? Well, they actually have Sabbath elevators. And uh, I said, um, what is the purpose of the Sabbath elevator? And they said, well, you can't push the button. That would be work. And so what we do is we have Sabbath elevators so we can walk in there and uh, they'll just automatically close and take us to where we want to go so we don't have to push the button because that would be work. And so it's not something that happened just in the first century. It's going on today. There are people who really are fanatical about man-made traditions heaped onto and added to the Sabbath. And so turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and we're going to see how Jesus addresses this whole Sabbath mess. Um, He did it on several occasions, but we're just going to use this text here. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. We learn how far the Jews had wandered away from the real purpose of the Sabbath and what Jesus said about the Sabbath. We start in verse 23 of Mark 2 and read this. And it happened that... As he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and he and his disciples began to make their way along, picking the heads of grain. Now, this was legal. The the Old Testament law made provision for this. If you were to go through someone's field or orchard or vineyard, you could have all you could eat while you were there. But if you left, you couldn't carry anything. That would be stealing. You you couldn't walk away with a big bunch of grapes and go, I'm just eating. Um, No, that wouldn't cut it. You could eat and glean as you walked through people's fields. And so what was happening, and we did this on our vacation with our kids, is we found some wheat, and you grab the wheat, and you do this to it, and then you blow the chaff away, and you can see the little heads of grain, and you eat it. I mean, it's not a way to to get very much food, you know, it's like trying to get full on sunflower seeds, you know, you starve to death trying to get enough nourishment to even get full, but that's what they were doing, picking a little grain, you know, eating it as they went through, and what's interesting, it seems that the Pharisees were kind of hiding, and they were following them, looking for them, looking for any reason to accuse Jesus, so they were spying on him, you know, it's like, what are they doing in that field, did they just, they just pick some grains, look at that, they actually ate on the Sabbath, they harvested, so that's what's going on here. So, they're making their way along, they're picking heads of grain, verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and his companions became hungry, and how he entered in the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him? Now, Jesus is referring to a time when David is, is um, hungry, his army is hungry, they're on the go, they're starving, and David shows up to the tabernacle and says, we need something to eat. And Abathar, the high priest, is there and say, sorry, I don't have anything prepared, um, but there is the consecrated loaves, why don't you take them? Now, Abathar didn't say, well, listen... We've got these consecrated loaves here, but these loaves are sacred unto the Lord. You should just go ahead and starve so we can keep these here. That was never the purpose of those loaves. 
The purpose of God's commandments are always to do us good. And somebody's starving to death, you give them the consecrated loaves. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we have an idea that, you know, you go in, you buy a little fluffy loaf of bread. We're talking big loaves. These things, those loaves they put before the Lord were big. When you find out how much material went into them, they're big, like three-foot discs of bread. And so they take these big consecrated loaves, and they take them, and David eats, and he gives it to his army, and he eats. So Jesus says, first of all, Remember what happened when David was hungry? We were hungry. We walked through the field. We ate, and the grain wasn't even consecrated. And it was fine when David did it, and it's fine when we did it. Then look what he says in verse 27. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. His whole point is this. Listen, God didn't make the Sabbath so men could serve the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath so that the Sabbath would be a blessing to men. Not something harmful to them. That's what he's arguing here. God didn't create mankind so they could obey the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath to be a blessing for people, to give them a chance to rest from their labors. Then he says in verse 28, And even if that didn't matter, I have something else I want you to know. The Son of Man is even the Lord. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now this is a major statement. Jesus right here is saying... You know who instigated the Sabbath? I did. I am the Sabbath Lord. You are to celebrate the Sabbath unto the Lord. Guess who Lord is? Me. And so I can do what I want. Now that's what Jesus says here. But the Sabbath was never made to keep men from eating, to make them starve. It was to be a blessing to them, to help them so they could rest and take a day off to worship God and be refreshed. That's the whole point right here. But of course, they had just heaped on all these man-made traditions to the point where the Sabbath became a major burden. You can imagine trying to prepare on Friday enough so you wouldn't have to lift anything bigger than a fig for a 24-hour period. That, that's a burden. That is a, a burden, a great burden. So, all this to say here is the Jews had messed up the Sabbath. And it was originally patterned after God's day of wrath. Now, we want to look at another text, Deuteronomy 5.15. Now, this is the other place, the Ten Commandments. Turn there, Deuteronomy 5.15. This is the other place the Ten Commandments are listed. And this is right before they're getting ready to enter the Promised Land. And in Deuteronomy 5.15, the Fourth Commandment is listed. But this time, a different rationale is given. A different historical event is referred to than creation. I just want you to look at this in 5.15 of Deuteronomy. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Notice what he refers to here, the Exodus. Why was the Exodus a picture of the Sabbath? This is why. Because they worked and slaved seven days a week in Egypt. And God brought them out of Egypt and gave them a day off each week. And not only that, promised to bring them into the land of rest. A land flowing with milk and honey. So this is kind of the origin of the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and how the Jews had corrupted it and its purpose. Now the big question that we need to ask and answer is this. 
So how come we don't keep the Sabbath? I mean, the New Testament um, talks about the Jesus keeping the Sabbath. So what about the church? What about us? Well, let me just say, say, take you through some text. Turn to Romans 15, 14. Romans 14. And uh, in this text, Paul is talking about our liberties as Christians, what we have freedom to do and what we have freedom not to do, and how we are to make sure that we don't use our freedoms to cause other people to stumble, that we are to defile our conscience, that God has given us our conscience to guide us, and we either need to re-educate our conscience or that we need to not defile it in any case because uh, that would be sin. And he says this in the first five verses, Romans 14. He says, now he starts off, and we're actually going to look at verse 5 more closely, but I want you to see how he's flowing here. He's giving examples of things that we have freedom in and what not to do with that freedom. He says, but um, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He's saying, listen, some people, you know, maybe are dyed in wool vegetarians, they think meat is sinful, and so they don't eat meat. So don't go judging the person about eating meat. You know, you can educate them with the scripture, show them what the word of God says, but whatever you do, don't invite them over for a big hot roast beef sandwich. You know, don't defile his conscience. Don't try and force it on him. And then maybe ridicule him because he doesn't eat roast beef and you do. I mean, it's really, it doesn't matter what we eat, is what he's saying. If we want to be a vegetable eater, fine. If you want to eat everything, fine. But don't go ruining each other because of things that you have freedom to either do or not do. Now, notice the second thing he says is in verse 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, notice what he has said there. One person regards one day above another. You know, I worship on Tuesday. Tuesday is the day to worship. Another person says, oh, every day is the same to me. And what is his instruction here? Each person must be fully convinced where? In his own mind. In other words, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Worship on Sunday, worship on Tuesday, worship on Wednesday, worship on Saturday, worship on any day you want, have a special day. Just worship. And that's what he says. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, Paul is addressing the Judaizers who were who had come into the Galatian church there and had tried to compel people to live like Jews. In other words, oh, you're saved by grace, but you're kept by works. You're, you're saved by grace, but you're sanctified by works. That is, you're made holy before God by works, so you have to still keep all these Jewish things. And that's the kind of people he's writing to here. And he says this, starting in verse 9 of Galatians 4. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? Now notice he says, okay, you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How is it that you're turning back again to things weak and worthless, elemental things, which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Which tells us they thought that by doing, they had to do these things in order to be righteous before God. And look at what he says. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. 
which tells us that the observing of days and months and seasons and years, especially for the purpose of being right before God, is just unnecessary. Now turn to Colossians chapter 2. Here Paul addresses Judaizers again. In this book, the theme is the supremacy of Christ. Paul is talking about how Christ is superior than all of these other things. And again, the Judaizers were compelling them to try and live like Jews. And this is what he says, starting in verse uh, 13. Let me just read verse 13. We're actually going to camp on verse 16 and 17. But I want you to see the flow because there's a therefore there. And I want you to see why it's there. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Then in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. His whole purpose is there is this. Listen, you were dead in your sins. He made you alive. He canceled out your debts. He forgave you all your sins. You're made righteous by God's forgiveness and Christ's righteousness given to you. And then he says this in verse 16. Therefore... Because you're made righteous and forgiven in these ways, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, that is pretty clear. Don't let anyone judge you about a Sabbath day. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. Those things are mere shadows of a greater substance, which is Christ. And we're going to see how that is in just a minute. But all of these texts clearly teach us that as Christians, we don't need to observe the seventh day of the week or any other day for that matter. That it is a matter of personal conviction, the day that you worship or the days you worship. And that it is something that it's not something that makes you righteous observing a day. And it is not an issue to judge anyone else about. Now, now we go to the the big text on all of this, and that's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. This is one of the warning sections in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews stops and he addresses these Jews who are in the church, but they haven't really come to Christ yet. They're thinking about it. Some are thinking of leaving. Some have already gone apostate. And these fence-sitters, he's trying to get them, exhort them to believe in the gospel. And he starts off in Hebrews 3, 7, describing everything we've talked about so far. In Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 11, he mentions everything we've talked about so far. He mentions the creation account. He mentions the Sabbath rest, the exodus, the wandering in the wilderness, All of the things we've just looked at, he's woven them all together in this one passage. And I'm going to try and do an exposition of this in five minutes. Okay, this is it. Look at verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. 
and they did not know my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what is he talking about this trial in the wilderness where they tested him for 40 years? He's talking about what happened after they left Egypt, right? They went through the Red Sea. They camped at Mount Sinai for a year and two months. They were getting ready to go in to the promised land through the southern portion. And when they got there, the people said, I don't know, maybe we should send spies. Okay, send spies. So they send spies out there. Joshua and Caleb come back and say, yeah, let's do it. And the other ten say, no, we can't. So what happened? They tried God. They tested God. And so for 40 years, they wandered around until that whole generation died off, except for Joshua and Caleb, who are the only two who believed the word of God, and they entered into the land of rest. Key thing to know. Now, look at verse 12. He says this, after giving that illustration. Now, he's quoting from Psalm 95, something David wrote, and we'll get to that in a minute. He says, take care, in verse 12, brethren that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Now notice this is the second time he's already said this in verse 7. And now he's saying it again in verse 15 to these Jews who haven't committed to Christ today. Right now, do not harden your heart. Listen to what we're preaching to you. Now. Notice what he says in verse 16. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see, now this is a key verse here. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, if you look at all these verses, you find these reasons why, why, Egypt, why the people after leaving Egypt failed to enter the promised land, the land of rest, and that was this. One, they had evil hearts. Two, they fell away from the living God. Four, they hardened their hearts. Five, or, or three, they hardened their hearts. Four, they sinned. Six, they were disobedient. And then twice, he says, they had unbelief. They failed to believe what God told them to get into that land of rest. They failed to believe in the word of God. That is critical. So that's how he starts off here. Now we're getting somewhere about the Sabbath. Just hang on. Look at verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. This is a bad chapter division here. Should just all be chapter 3. He says, Therefore, let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest. Notice, there's still a promise of entering his rest. People can still enter God's rest. Notice that. That any one of you should, should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news. Take note of that. Good news. That's the gospel. We have had the gospel preached to us just as they also. Now, their gospel was, you believe me, enter into the land. Our gospel is, you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior crucified for sinners, buried, rose again on the third day, and you'll have eternal life. He says, but the word they heard did not profit them. Why? 
because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Now, that's the second time he said that, right? That's what he said at 319. They were not able to because, because of unbelief. And then he says at the end of two, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. That's the same thing, right? Then he says in three, now this is a critical verse because this tells us how we enter the Sabbath rest of God. Notice, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They didn't enter because of unbelief. We have entered because we did believe what? The gospel message. Now, going on. Now he, at the end of three and verse four, gets to the first issue of why um, that we looked at, that creation modeled the Sabbath rest. And he says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That was the model, remember, of of the Sabbath rest. Then he goes on to say this, And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Why? Well, we notice, because of unbelief, unbelieving hearts, evil hearts, hardened hearts, those things. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter, what? The Sabbath rest of God. And those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Now this is the whole point of all this. It's this. God created the earth in six days, rested on the seventh. That was the pattern. The command was given that the people should observe the Sabbath day and that they should enter the land of rest. And so the first generation didn't even enter the land of rest because of disbelief. But Joshua did take them into the land of rest, but then spoke of another day after that. That's what verse 8 says. Now, not only that, he is quoting over and over again Psalm 95 written by David, who speaks of a Sabbath rest still to be entered. So the question is, what is the rest that God wants us to enter, which is pictured by the Sabbath day? And that's faith in Christ. That's what we learn in verse 3. We who have believed in the good news preach what? Enter that Sabbath rest. Look at verse 9. So there remains a rest for the people of God. Same thing he says in verse 6. Same thing he says above in verse 1. For those, for he says, the one who has entered his has his the, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, notice this. He says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter this rest. How do you do that? Well, he says in verse 3, by believing what? The gospel. Now, what's interesting here, and look at verse 11. When you see him say this, be diligent and to enter, these are both aorist active tenses. And this is what it means. An aorist tense is to enter into this thing at one point and stay there. He's saying, we who place our faith in Christ 
at a point in time, enter into a permanent Sabbath rest, which was pictured by God's resting on the seventh day, which was pictured by the land of rest, which is what Joshua spoke of, which is what David spoke of, which they didn't enter because of disbelief, but which we enter through belief. And once we believe in Christ, we permanently enter the Sabbath rest, not just on Sunday, not just on Saturday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, all the time we are in the rest of God. And that is why we don't have to observe a day. Now, that's easy. Okay. So having said all that, I just want to point out a couple other things that relate to this. And uh, then we'll move on to our next question. And that is this. When you look at the Bible, you see something interesting. For instance, in Acts 20, verse 7, when Paul is gathering uh, together with some believers, it says, And on the first day of the week, when they gathered together to break bread, Paul began to talk to them, and then he preached until midnight. But what's interesting here is they gathered when? On the first day of the week, which is Sunday. You see the same thing mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16.2 where Paul writes to the Corinthians, On the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper so that a collections may be made when I come. It seems that Paul is saying when you gather together, each of you take your money that you want to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem, collect it then so when I come I don't have to get it from you. It will already be collected, it will already be given and I can come and you do that. When do you do it? First day of the week. Now, he also, or the Bible also says in Revelation 1.10, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, when the apostle John is getting ready to receive his vision from God, which the whole book is based on, he says, and I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, that book was written about 90, 95 A.D., somewhere in there. And what's interesting is, is by the end of the first century, the first day of the week, had become known as the Lord's Day. And why is that? Because that's the day Christ rose from the dead, right? That's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the day that the church began to celebrate. And that's when they normally met on. So that is why Sunday is traditionally the day. But you can worship on Saturday. You can worship Wednesday night. You can worship all the time. You don't have to have a specific day. Because you who I believe permanently enter the rest that the Sabbath day was a picture of. That's what the New Testament teaches. Now, having said that, let's move on to an even bigger, greater topic that is so yummy that, um, that it's just, uh, this is going to be taking a drink with a fire hose. Hang on. Just open up and we'll push up as much as we can in there. This is a question. The congregation does not seem to participate very much during the praise and worship section of the Sunday service. How can we do that more effectively? Well, what's interesting is, is the question actually is asking how can we not participate more effectively. But I think we know that they meant how can we participate more effectively. So there's a statement followed by a question. Let's just talk about this statement first. I don't think that you can look at somebody and tell whether or not they're worshiping God Unless that person is committing some outward act of sin, then you can know for certain they aren't worshiping God. And this is why I say that. Listen to Isaiah 29, verse 13. Here Isaiah 
Actually, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah, and he rebukes the people of Israel because they were not worshiping him in the right way. But they were worshiping, just not doing it in an acceptable way. And listen to what he says here. He says, this people draw nearer with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence or fear for me consists of tradition learned by rote. This text tells us that there are some who draw near to God with their words. They talk in a religious way. They may sing the songs. But if you could look at their hearts, if you would be God, you would know there is no worship going on. There's selfishness, self-indulgence. You know, maybe they're thinking of golfing and they're singing this hymn or whatever. They're thinking of something somewhere else. They're just going through the religious, mechanical, rote, memorized worship of men. God says, their hearts are far from me. Their reverence or fear for me has been replaced by mechanical, rote worship. Now, sometimes people on the outside, they look like, you know, white, clean things, but inside they're just full of dead man's bones. That's what he's saying there in Isaiah. But other times people look on the outside pretty dead. I mean, sometimes I'm up here preaching and I get to look at all of you and you who are sleeping wake up. (laughs) And sometimes I look and there's people who kind of look catatonic. They're sitting there. And... um, And I will even try to wake them up for fun. I'll preach right at them or something for a little bit and get a little more fiery and see if I can jar them loose. They're unjarable. They're in suspended animation. Their mind is with Alice in Wonderland. And I'm thinking, well, they're just missing out. And I'll finish. I'll go to the back. And those same people will come with tears in their eyes, so impacted they were by the truth of God's word. They aren't not worshiping. They're just shutting down everything on the outside and listening as intently as they can. Now, one of my sons does this. Um, you know, at first, I didn't know what was going on, but you know, you start lecturing him a little bit. Hey, and I start talking to him, and he gets into this catatonic look like, And I'm wondering, is he shutting me down? And then I'll ask him, tell me what I just told you. And every single word will come out. Because he is listening so hard because he knows what's happened if he doesn't. He just shuts down the outside. (laughs) And that's fine. But you can look at somebody like that and think, oh, that person there during the song part, they aren't even singing. Well, maybe they're praying about their mother who's dying. Maybe they're praying about their neighbor who needs the Lord. Maybe they're praising God in their hearts about the words that they're singing. You can't tell on the outside whether somebody is worshiping God or not. Now, many people, because they do not have a biblical view of worship and worshiping God, they worship God in unacceptable ways, even though they're very sincere and very passionate about their worship. Their worship is still unacceptable. You look at somebody who may be singing away, may have a smile on their face, may be clapping their hands, swaying back and forth. This doesn't tell you they're worshiping. They might be worshiping, but they might not be worshiping either. They might be indulging their flesh. You say, well, what do you mean by that? They might be singing because that song gives them pleasure. Because they like that rhythm. And that, 
this experience makes them feel good. I mean, you can get that from going to you know, a secular rock concert. Let's say you go there, you hear some band you listened to when you were young, and you sing along, you par- participate to the nth degree, you, you're focused the whole time, and you leave never having even worshipped God a smidgen. And so don't ever think that worship is about you. Worship is not about us. It's not about you. It's not about how you feel. Or it's not about what you want. Worship is about what God wants and what makes God feel good. And this is something the church needs to hear desperately today. And I'm not just saying this church, I mean the church at large. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't enjoy the songs we sing. You know, we should all sing about you monsters of the deep arise and leapy lame for joy and things that are old and things that we are unfamiliar with. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying we should come emotionless and stand there and be reverent. I'm not saying that either. What I'm saying is, is worship is not about you and giving you what you want. It's about God and reverencing him, fearing him, and giving him what he commands that we give him, what he deserves to be given, which is praise and adoration and thanksgiving and focus. Now, the problem with most churches today is they go overboard on one of two extremes. One is feelings and one is tradition. And let me just explain. You go into some churches, and I preach at these churches where everything's very structured and very organized, you know, where, okay, well, you have, you know, 29 minutes to preach, and uh, you will come up here, this will happen, 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 and we go through there, and everything happens, and we do it, and everybody leaves, and, you know, everybody's standing there like robots. Everybody knows exactly what's going to happen. We're going to say the Apostles' Creed at this moment. We're going to say this. We're going to do greeting. You know, and everything is, and everybody comes church and they go through this mechanical thing and they go home no no that's not good that's not good you don't want to just be mechanical and come through because you've always done it that way there's got to be some heart in there there's got to be some passion there's got to be spirit you've got to have your insides alive to god and focusing on god now you can worship god in a church like that but you need to be careful that you don't just get lulled by what you normally do and it can happen in any church if it's normal every Sunday, kind of have a, a structure. And structure is good. God wants structure. When you look at his word, everything in the worship systems that he commanded in the scriptures were very orderly and very structured, never flippant, never spontaneous ever. It was always structure that he wanted. But you need to be careful that you don't add man-made things onto there and just do mechanical tradition. That's what Isaiah condemned. The other extreme is that you come and you're very fervent and passionate, very emotional, very just, you know, praise God. Get excited for Jesus. Glory be to God, you know, where you pretty soon you're, you're jumping around and you've got all this emotion and you're having this emotional frenzy, but you're doing nothing according to the word of God. You're indulging your flesh. You're making yourself feel good. It's kind of like you go to church and get an emotional high that hopefully will last you to the next time you get together with some other people to have another emotional high. It has nothing to do with God. The seeker-sensitive church growth movement specifically tries to do this. Bring unbelievers in. Bring them into the congregation. Give them what they want. Actually, go survey them. Go door-to-door and ask unbelievers what they want in church as if they know. As if God's word doesn't know. And then when they come, you give them what they want so they can come here and have a great time. 
That's not worship. Unbelievers can't worship. And this is the problem with bringing the church service and focusing it on unbelievers. We need to come to church to do what God's word says we need to do. Now, when we look at the scriptures, we find all sorts of just great things about worship. And again, this is like trying to, you know, stuff a whole elephant into a thimble. It's hard to do. It's impossible to do. So we're just going to get the tip of the trunk in here. But let me just... Let me just point some things out to you that will hopefully cause you to think and make you want to study some other things further. What's great is, is having Bible software. I mean, this is a great thing. Because I can sit down and say, okay, this is what I want to know. I want to know every occurrence of singing in the Bible. So I type in sing, sang, sing, singing. And I can type in hymn, hymns, songs, Praises, worship, worshiping, worshipped. I can string them all together, as many as I want, and hit enter, and it just goes through the Bible and shows me every single verse immediately where all those occur. And that's what I did. Because the church today has gone way overboard on the whole concept of music, as if music were the central thing that the church is to be doing. And that preaching has been virtually set aside, even though the Bible says give attention to the public reading of scripture, to teaching and exhortation, they now give attention to music, to drama, to entertaining people. And the thing that God commands to give attention to has been set aside. And the thing that is not the primary thing has become the major thing, and that's the problem. So what is it about music? What do we see when we look at the scriptures? Well, this is very interesting. First, when you look through the Bible, you find that they sang songs during momentous occasions. Like when they crossed through the Red Sea, then they sang a song. When they entered the Promised Land, they sang a song. When David slayed Goliath, they wrote a song and they sang it. Now, when you look at the law, the sacrificial system, you know, Leviticus and Numbers 1 through 10 and Exodus, and you look at those for all the times God said, this is the time during my worship services in the temple worship that I want you to be singing songs. Guess how many times songs and singings were mentioned in the law of Moses? None. None. He never said songs were to be incorporated into the temple worship system. It's not included anywhere. I find that very interesting. Now, what else is interesting is when David came along, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the one who wrote the book of Psalms, all these inspired songs in our Bible, David then included a temple choir to be present and sing songs to the Lord. Because now they had all these great inspired hymns to sing, psalms to sing. And so David required singers and a temple choir. That continued on all the way through the time of the kings. And then they went to captivity to Babylon, came back, and they're still there because we see them in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So when the New Testament comes along, they have had a very long tradition of singing inspired songs, the psalms, to God in the worship of the temple. So that's kind of the just a quick, super thorough, unthorough treatment of it. But that's kind of the big picture. Very unthorough, but that kind of gives you the, the shot. Now, what about the church? When you look at the New Testament... 
and you look at all the letters to the churches, all those letters written by the apostles to tell the church what they're to do and not do, what does it tell us about singing? What does it tell us about singing? Well, actually, there's only five references. From Romans to Jude, and this is them. Two of them are quoted texts of the Old Testament that mention singing. In other words, in Romans 15.9 and Hebrews 2.12, there is an Old Testament text mentioned that talks about singing a psalm. Secondly, there is one illustration where singing is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 when he's speaking about tongues and he says just as tongues are to be, to be used, we are to, to um, speak in tongues with the mind so it can be interpreted and prophesy with the mind so it can be interpreted so we are to sing with the mind so we know what we're singing. He just uses an illustration. But there's three other texts. The first two are parallel texts. The first is Ephesians 5.19. Turn there. Ephesians 5.19, and this is just going to be great. This is fascinating stuff. Paul, in this section, is talking about the believer's walk. He spent the first three chapters talking about everything we have in Christ, and now in chapter 4 he starts talking about how we're supposed to walk because of what we have in Christ. And in verse 18 he says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he says this in verse 19. Look at what it says. The outflow of a Spirit-filled life of a believer is this, that we to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. He says, listen, when you're walking in the Spirit, just the natural outflow of this should cause you to just start spewing forth psalms of praise to God. That is normal Christianity. That God's people would be singing forth his praises, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That is, songs that are directed towards God and according to the word of God are actually contain the very words of scripture themselves. Now, there is a parallel text, and this is what we're going to focus on in Colossians 3. And uh, last time I told them to turn to Colossians 3.19 and everybody was trying to follow along and I heard people going out there, no, no, he just means 16, 16. I have dyslexia and I said it backwards and so I'm going to try not to do that now. Turn to verse 16 of Colossians 3 and notice this. This is just great. In this text, which is written, these Ephesians and Colossians are written by the same, at the same time by Paul. And they contain pretty much a lot of the same bits of information. So there's a lot of parallel verses. And in this verse here, we learn some very key things about he, what he was saying in Ephesians 3 or Ephesians 5 that we just got through looking at verse 19. And notice what he says in verse 16. He says this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, notice the source of these songs and the purpose of these songs. First, you are commanded to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This is the command of the verse. You get Christ's word in you richly, thoroughly, saturate yourself with the scriptures. That's the first part. Then once you have a thorough understanding of God's word with all wisdom, 
And what is wisdom? Wisdom is the practical application of the word of God. So you get God's word in you. Then with all wisdom, that is with all application in your life, you take that and be teaching and admonishing one another. So notice the emphasis here. God's word in you. God's word being lived by you. Then teach and admonish one another with these truths of God's word richly dwelling in you. It reminds me of Ezra 7.10. I preached on it a while ago. Ezra was this man who it says was blessed by God. God's good hand was upon him because he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and then to teach it. That is exactly what this is saying right here. Get the word dwelling in you richly. Live by it. That's the wisdom part. Then teach and admonish others with it. And notice how it's to be done. You are to teach and admonish other people with this word of Christ that you are living by, which is richly dwelling in you, by singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making praise to God because of it. Now that is great. That just gives us a whole dimension, isn't it, of singing. Do you usually think of your singing as a way of teaching and admonishing other people? Well, that's what Colossians says we're to be doing. We are to have God's word so in us that all our songs are be derived from God's word. And it must come from a person who knows God's word. And it must come from a person who's living God's word. And it must be for the purpose of teaching and admonishing other people with the word of God. The New Testament tells us that singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is primarily for the purpose of teaching and admonishing people so they can worship and glorify God. A.W. Tozer, I think, said this. He said, we should demand the same precision in the lyrics of our songs as we do from the words of our sermons. And that is exactly true, and this is why. The only other text that mentions singing... In the letters to the churches is James 5.13, where James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Praises who? To praises to God. If you're cheerful, sing praises to God. That's it. That's all there is. Those, basically, those three verses are the primary verses that tell us about singing. And they're all saturated with the word of God and all focused on God for the edification of the saints. Now, let's move to the question part of the statement. How can we teach people to worship more effectively? And this is the huge, huge question. And um, it's, um, it's so huge that uh, it's almost frustrating just trying to give you a little dip in it. But we're going to take a whirlwind tour, just give you some brief bullet points. And hopefully when we're done, it'll just give you some fodder to chew on and some things to think about and to study on your own so that you can kind of get this um, down because we all need to know how to worship God effectively since the whole purpose of our life should be to worship God. First, we have to ask ourselves, what is worship? We've been talking about worship. What is it? Well, there's two key texts. The first is John 4. If you want to turn to John 4, you find the first key text on worship. This is the situation of the woman at the well. Remember, the disciples were going through Samaria, 
they were, um, which was very unusual, is Jews didn't even travel through Samaria. When they wanted to get to Galilee from Jerusalem, they went down to Jericho, crossed the Jordan, went up the side of the other side of Jordan, past Samaria, and then crossed back over and went to Galilee so they wouldn't have to touch their foot on Samaritan soil. So here they're going through Samaria, which is unusual. And Jesus tells his disciples, go in to the city and get me something to eat. And so while he's sitting there by the well, this woman comes to him and she can tell he's a Jew by the way he's dressed. And she sees him and Jesus says, how about giving me a drink? And the woman's kind of taken back because Jews, first of all, hardly ever came into Samaria. And secondly, they never spoke to strange women. And so Jesus says, how about giving me a drink? And she says, well, how do you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then Jesus says, well, I just want you to know. You could ask me, and I could give you living water. And if you drink the water I can give you, you'll never thirst again. And then he goes on to explain to her that he is the Messiah. She starts cluing on here, you know, we know the Messiah is coming. I'm the guy. And then Jesus begins to turn the guns on her heart. And this is what's really great. He just asks her randomly, hey, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He goes, that's right, you don't have a husband. He says, you've had five husbands, as a matter of fact. And the one you're shacking up with right now is not your husband. Now, that kind of was a problem to her. And, and I just ask you this. What happens when you're trying to share Christ with an unbeliever and while you're sharing with them, you start talking about their sins? What's the first thing they do? Change the subject. What about the natives in Africa? There's so many translations and transliterations. How do you know your translation is true? They immediately begin to bring up other issues to get the spotlight off of them and their life and to put it onto someone else's and their problem. And so this is exactly what this woman does. When Jesus exposes this woman's sin, in verse 19, she then brings up the big issue of the day between the Samaritans and the Jews, and that is, where is the God-honoring praise to worship? The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped in Samaria at Mount Gerizim. And so, in order to get the heat off of her, she says, um, look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Now, isn't that a change of subject? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know, and we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth." Now, it'd be fun to just spend several weeks on this, but let me just give you the, just the bare bones bullet points here, and then we're going to go to the other text and kind of bring this all together. First, Jesus tells her, location is irrelevant. You can worship God anywhere you want. Secondly, he tells her, you can't worship a God you don't know. The Jews have the right God, you do not. Third, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. 
Four, God is seeking true worshipers. And five, all acceptable worship must be in spirit and truth. That's what we learn from that. Now turn to Romans 12. And here's one other key text on worship. There are others, but this is another key text. Paul has spent 11 chapters talking on doctrine, and in chapter 12 he begins to talk about what they are to do with all this truth about the gospel and the righteousness of God revealed through Christ and the gospel. And this is what he says in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. If you have a King James or a New King James, yours might read, which is your service or your spiritual service, but the word worship might not be there. And the reason is, is when the King James translated it, they just translated it basically the general meaning of the word. But this word is almost always used in relationship to, to serving God like in the temple, or serving God in some sort of spiritual capacity. So it is talking about worship, so the NIV and the NASB and the RSV have a better translation when they say the spiritual service of worship or uh, a worship, um, uh, the service of worship. Now notice several things from this text. Here, your body, your entire being, is to be presented to God. Not just on Sunday, not just on Sunday and Wednesday, not just on Sunday and Wednesday and whenever you have Bible study. All the time... You are to take your body and to present it as an offering. Secondly, you are to present your body as a living sacrifice, not a dead one. You aren't to kill it once you get it up there like the Jews did. You take your body all the time and realize, as I live, I am to be a sacrifice. Third, you are to be holy in your conduct as you constantly offer up yourself on the altar, which means you are to have your sins confessed and not be living in rebellion against God. And four, when you offer up all that you are to God, when you offer it up all the time in everything you do, when you offer it up with all your sins confessed, you then and only then are offering up acceptable sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship, he says. Now, when you take both of those texts we just look at and you combine them together, you get a clear picture of what worship is. It's everything you do all the time as a believer, whether you're taking out the trash or whether you're at work or whether you're here on Sunday morning singing songs or whether you're teaching a Sunday school class or whether you're changing a tire on the side of the road or right after you hit your thumb with a hammer. Everything you do, all the time, in every place, is your worship to God. And it is to be holy worship, or it's unacceptable. It is to be according to God's word, or it's unacceptable. It is to be from the heart, the spirit, or it's unacceptable. What guides worship? The word of God. What is the expression of worship? Everything you do. What is the focus of worship? God and only God, never men. Now there's one more important part we need to understand in answering the question about getting people to participate in worship. We need to talk about two different categories of people who can't worship. And that is unbelievers is the first one. Unbelievers cannot worship God. Why is that? Because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. 
according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and other texts. And when they are spiritually dead, spiritually dead people cannot worship God. Secondly, you have to worship according to the truth of God's word. And 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says the natural man cannot understand the things of God. Believers can understand the things of God. So how could they worship according to God's word? And third, Romans 8, 5 through 8 tells us that as unbelievers are hostile to God and they're unable to please him. Unable. They cannot. Romans 8, 5 through 8. So an unbeliever cannot offer any worship to God. None. Zero. That is why it is so critical that people be saved. Churches are full of people who think they're saved and they're not. And they come and do the, the motions, sing the songs, but they aren't offering up even a shred, a speck, a jot or tittle of acceptable worship to God. That is why it is so critical that people know who Jesus Christ is, repent of their sins and receive him as their savior and not just be religious Religious unbelievers cannot worship God. The other category of people who cannot worship God in an acceptable way are believers living in sin. You come here and you're not loving your wife. You come here and you've been cheating on somebody. You come here and you have lied or you have done any sin and you know what it is. And you know that sin is in your life and you have not confessed that sin to God and have not turned away from it. You have stolen, you have lied, you have murdered without a bullet, whatever. Now, can you worship God? Well, let's see what the scriptures say. Proverbs 15, 8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 21, 27 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? God in Ezekiel 33, 29-32, promised to judge Israel and make the land a desolation and a waste because of their abominations and describes their abominations in these words. Listen to this. They come to you, speaking of Ezekiel, they come to Ezekiel as a people who come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth. And their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one of who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. God says, that's why I'm going to make their land a desolation. They come, they gather for worship, they hear you preach Ezekiel, they go through the motions, they don't have their sins confessed, their hearts are full of evil. I'm going to make their land a desolation and a waste. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Godly Man's Picture, drawing from this same verse, said this, quote, Many love the word preached only for its eloquence and notion. They come to a sermon as to a music lecture, as to a garden to pick flowers, but not to have their lusts subdued or their hearts bettered. These are like a foolish woman who paints her face but neglects her health, end quote. The people of Micah's time had the same problem. They were living in sin and they were claiming to worship God. And we know this verse. Listen to what he says in Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? 
Shall I come with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in a thousand rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn and my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Listen to what he's saying here. He's saying, should I come and, and bow down? It's escalating. Should I come and give some burnt offerings? Do the yearly calf thing? Should I come and do a thousand rams? Should I come and give 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I come and offer my firstborn son as a sacrifice? And then he says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That must happen. Sure, God wants him to bow down. Sure, he required oil sacrifices and yearly calf sacrifices. Sure, they were to do all the Old Testament system, but they had to have their hearts right before God. They couldn't come before him with wickedness, otherwise their sacrifices were unacceptable. So you come here on Sunday morning, you don't know Christ, you can't, can't worship him. You come here on Sunday morning, you know Christ, you have unconfessed sin in your life, you can't worship him until you confess that sin. So, what makes us better worshipers? Four points. Be saved. Know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Repent of your sins and believe in him for salvation because it can only come through him. Two, be studying. Have the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. The word of God must inform all you do whenever you go anywhere. The greater your understanding of the Word of God, the greater potential you have of offering up perpetual acceptable sacrifice of worship. Three, be living in holiness before God. Have your sins confessed all the time. Don't be one of those people who sins and then kind of feels bad about it and then doesn't confess it. You just kind of live in it. You've kind of got it in your life and you kind of play the Christian in the other half. Just confess your sins quickly. Four, be God-centered, not self-centered. When you come here, when you're worshiping God, ask yourself this, how can I please God? How can I sing this to God? How can I focus on God? And that will make you a better worship. So when we come together corporately to worship, it will be all the sweeter because everybody here will be walking in the Spirit. Everybody here will have their sins confessed. And everybody here will be focusing on God, and you can't get any better than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these questions that people have asked, questions that their hearts have wondered about, questions we need to know. Oh, Father, there's so many things we could talk about, about worship, so many good texts that instruct us on different things we need to know. Father, I pray for those here who who maybe don't know you, who think, boy, I don't know if I, if I know God and I don't know, I didn't know I couldn't worship him without knowing him. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of your gospel, that they would understand that Christ died for their sins, that he was buried and rose again on the third day, and that through faith in him and what he did, they can have eternal life and be forgiven of all their sins. And Father, for us who are believers, I pray that you would cause us 
as we come to worship you in every way, in every place, that we would continually have your word dwelling in us richly, that we would quickly confess our sins when we fall, and Father, that we would give you glory and have you be the focus and centerpiece of all that we do, that we would live asking ourselves what would Jesus do and do that with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength so that we can worship you all the time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.